Hello, I'm Roy McMillan, and welcome to another episode of the Penguin Podcast, where we'll be exploring great journeys. Some journeys test the limits of physical endurance, whilst others lead to the discovery of tribal societies. Sometimes circumstances force us to venture down a difficult path, or a path may be used as an escape route. And of course, all of these statements may be to do with metaphors rather than actual travelling. But these are just some of the types of journey we'll be exploring in today's episode. And we'll also have an exclusive treat for you later on. So, sit back and allow us to take you on your own podcast journey. Many of our authors have written accounts of their travels abroad and of what they've learned about a country's history and way of life before modern developments. One such is Jared Diamond, whose book The World Until Yesterday documents his travels to New Guinea in order to discover how tribal societies approach social practices. Here he is talking about travelling to New Guinea and finding a rare species of bird native to that country. When I arrive in New Guinea, I arrive in the capital city, Port Moresby, which is a big city with all the problems of cities. So Port Moresby is not that different from L.A. Where it really feels different is when I get out into rural areas, into the jungle, and then it's different. Then there's the feeling of excitement, of beauty, the beauty of the jungle, the greenness of it, instead of the concrete of L.A., the quiet of the jungle with the noise being the bird sounds, not the screeching of brakes and cars, the sense of peace of the jungle. And then there are the birds. Um, there are 100 birds singing around me, most of them unseen. I know most of them now through 50 years of experience, but some of them are still in mysteries. And there's this romantic mystery of hearing a bird song, which I don't recognize. Maybe I've heard it before in many years, but there's that mystery. Who's doing it? Can I track it down this time? What happened when I discovered New Guinea's long-lost golden-fronted bowerbird? Well, first, what is the long-lost golden-fronted bowerbird? Many species of New Guinea birds, particularly birds of paradise, um, were discovered in the 19th century, not by European collectors who went out and collected them and said, I got this bird here, and we know where it's from. But instead, there were plume collectors, European merchants or Indonesian merchants, who got New Guineans to hunt birds with bows and arrows, stuff them, and send them back to Europe, um, where there were feather shops or hat shops in Paris and London that sold these fancy bird plumes to women for hats and for other decorations. So quite a few birds, particularly birds of paradise and bower birds with spectacular plumage, were discovered in the 19th century, not by Europeans who said that's where it lives, but instead they turned up in the Paris hat shops and it was unknown where they actually lived. Eventually, the Paris hat shop birds were tracked down to their home grounds when European collectors started going out to different places and began collecting birds, including the hat shop birds, and figured out where the bird actually lives. By the 19... 60s, when I began working in New Guinea, um, there were only two of the hat shop birds that remained undiscovered. One of them, a bowerbird with a gorgeous golden orange crest called the golden fronted bowerbird, known only from five specimens that are turned up in a Paris hat shop in 1895, described as a new bowerbird species by Lord Rothschild at the museum in Tring. So museum after museum sends out collecting teams to New Guinea. They collect lots of birds, but the golden-fronted bowerbird has not yet turned up, 
as of the 1960s. In 1979, I was dropped by helicopter. I got myself dropped by helicopter in the largest unexplored remote mountain range left in New Guinea, the Foja Mountains. I was left there for a week. Naturally, I had dreams I'll rediscover the great bowerbird. Well, on one of the last days of the trip, I looked up and over my head, there was a bowerbird. Wow, maybe it's the golden front of bowerbird. And I looked and I could see the crest. And, oh, God, the crest is not golden. It's reddish-orange. Forget that. This is not the golden front of bowerbird. It's a relative. And if the relative is there, there's no way that the golden bowerbird is going to be there and stand the competition. So forget it. I then came back in 1981. And lo and behold, when I entered the jungle, after being dropped off by helicopter, the first bird that I saw was a bowerbird. Wow, okay, here's a bowerbird, but again, it's got a red-orange crest. Forget it, that's not the golden-fronted bowerbird. But there were some different things about it. The, there was a, the tail, the breasts were slightly different. The crest came down to the base of the bill instead of stopping in the middle of the forehead. So it wasn't quite like the garden bowerbird, but it had a red-orange crest. Couldn't be the golden-fronted. I then went back to the United States, to New York, where the four of the five Paris Hatchoff specimens were. I went up to the bird collection of the American Museum, went through the specimens of bowerbirds, and I saw the specimens not only of the golden-fronted bowerbird, which my Foja Mountain bird resembled in all respects except for my Foja bird having a red-orange crown instead of a golden crown, but I also looked at specimens of the gardener bowerbird, the ordinary widely distributed rubbish bowerbird, and I saw that specimens that had been collected freshly within a year or so had red-orange crests, and that with time the crest faded to more yellowish. And so the Paris hatchop birds with the golden crest, that golden was not the color in life. It was instead the color to which the specimens had faded. And in life it was red-orange. So in short, that was the rediscovery of the golden-fronted bowerbird. Jared Diamond, talking about travelling to New Guinea, which he draws on further in his book The World Until Yesterday, which is out now. Whilst some may travel to learn more about people, some people travel to learn more about flies. Here's Swedish author Frederik Schöberi on his book The Fly Trap, his mesmerising bestseller on travel, the joy of collecting and discovering the hidden wonders of life. Hello there, I am Frederik Schöberi. And this is the place where I live. It's an island in the archipelago east of Stockholm, in Sweden. I've been living here since the mid-80s, and over the years I've written quite a few books, among them The Fly Trap. It's about flies. Hoover flies. Science, you know. Well, no, that's not true. It's, it's more about vanity. I think, and islands, and of course, collecting. Um, it's a biography also of one of those forgotten Swedish adventurers who had his heydays during the 20s and 30s when he was traveling the wilderness of Kamchatka and Burma, collecting insects. People who know uh, literature here in Sweden, they usually call the fly trap an essay. And that's fine with me. Um, in Germany, France, Russia, and other countries, they, they call it a novel. I wouldn't say so, but if you want to call it a novel, feel free to do that. 
I would prefer, though, if you called it an autobiography, since the author is writing a lot about himself and his life on this island in the Baltic Sea. Um, recently, I read somewhere that The Plight Trap is an example of creative non-fiction. Uh, I'm not sure what that is, but it sounds all right. Actually, I don't care. Uh, my readers, most of them, they just call it a book uh, about flies, vanity, and traveling, and, and yes, uh, collecting. You know, as they say, uh, all the best things in life are free. Uh, fresh air, love, and flies. You should try that. See ya. That was Frederick Schuberty on The Fly Trap. Any traveller will undoubtedly reach a moment when the journey seems too large. They might find themselves staring up at the metaphorical mountain, mustering the strength to continue. Some people, however, literally do have a great mountain standing before them, which they've set out to climb. One of the greatest mountaineers of all time, Walter Bonatti, captured the adventure, audacity and magnitude of facing the world's largest mountains in writings that have been compiled in The Mountains of My Life. Here's a reading from the book. Nightfall almost took us by surprise. We couldn't sleep, we were too agitated. Gallieni started to tell us about his children. In my thoughts I was 10,000 feet lower, in the intimacy of my own home. Ogioni spoke of Portofino, where he had never been. Then he commented, We climbers really are a bunch of fools with all the beautiful things there are in this world. We go and get ourselves into these situations. Gallieni said, And to think that in Milano Maritima I have a comfortable house with the sea so calm and warm. You can jump in and you don't even have to worry about swimming because the water's so shallow. You can walk for miles and miles. Ogioni joked to mask his anxiety and was outwardly the most undisturbed of us all, but I was sure that apart from myself, he was the only other man who fully realised what a desperate plight we were in. So the night between Wednesday and Thursday passed. In the morning, Mazio came to our tent. The elasticised sheet covering his sleeping bag had been torn by the force of the wind. With a thousand contortions, we managed to organise ourselves and make room for him, and so we spent the day. We tried to encourage ourselves by telling one another that Friday would be fine, but we are not very convinced of this anymore. Inwardly, I was already working out the safest method of getting ourselves back down the route we had climbed. I was sure the summit of the central pillar was now unreachable, though I did not say so to my companions in order not to discourage them. Mazio talked to me about his ascent of my pillar on the Drew, which he had done a week earlier. We promised to meet again one day in Cormeur or Chamonix to commemorate the moments we were now going through. We all had a terrible thirst and quenched it by eating snow. We made little balls out of it and sucked them continually. I thought of the beauty of a household tap. You turn it on and it gives you all the water you want. It was paradoxical that among so much snow we could suffer so badly from thirst. The cold of the snow burned and chapped our mouths. So passed the daylight hours of Thursday, and a new night came upon us. During those long hours of darkness, Ogioni and I, most deeply buried in the sack, suffered acutely from lack of air. To him alone, finally, I confided my intention to retreat at all costs. He agreed with me, but was terrified at the prospect. The night wore on. I'd set my little alarm for half past three, and at that hour, in fact, at the shrilling of my wristwatch, I shouted to them all, We simply have to go down. We can't stay here any longer, or it'll be too late. We won't have any strength left.
a reading from The Mountains of My Life by Walter Bonatti, which is out on the 27th of May. You're listening to The Penguin Podcast. Still to come, Bear Grylls reaches a point where he wonders if he's come too far, Joe Simpson wonders if he'll ever get back, Tina Seskis's heroine on a journey that is as much away from herself as her home, and Griff Reese on revolutions, trails, quests and herds of unicorns, and an exclusive. Next, though, while all journeys have their struggles, some can actually be life-threatening. These are some of the themes and topics Dinah Jeffries explores in her book The Separation, where her protagonist, Lydia Cartwright, has to make the hazardous journey through the war-torn Malayan jungle to be reunited with her family. Here's the author, Dinah Jeffries, talking to her editor, Venetia Butterfield, about where the inspiration for the book came from. At the very beginning, um, I'd come home from Spain where we were living and um, was visiting my mother, and she has a lot of photograph albums from the 1940s and 1950s in Malaya, and we went through these albums, which I hadn't done you know, for 20 or 30 years, and they were so evocative of place and time, and they brought back so many memories of growing up in Malaya at such an interesting time that I felt that it had to be the place where I set the book. Uh, that was the first thing. Um, the second thing that I was interested in was the the way in the 1950s women's lives were so terribly restricted. Um, and I, I wanted to put a woman in a very difficult situation in a very difficult time, in fact, a dangerous time, and I knew that I wanted it to be about a separation. So that was the beginning. And how how old were you when you um, left Malaya? Well, I always say I was nine, but actually I was eight and a half. And you can remember, because we've spoken, you can remember your childhood very well there, can't you? It's very vivid. I can remember a lot. I can remember the holidays on the island where the launch would deliver our family and one other family to a completely deserted Malaysian island um, where we'd be left. What seemed to me like three months, it was probably only a week or two weeks maybe, or maybe it was longer. Um, I remember those holidays, the jellyfish um, I also remember the Chinese circus we used to go to, a terrifying circus of motorcyclists riding around a vertical kind of pit uh, up to the top and flames everywhere. Um, I also remember yellow ice cream, bright yellow ice cream with a flavour that I can't even begin to describe and I've never never tasted since but that those, those are the main memories and then the rest are, are sort of sensory memories of smells and colours and heat and um, that. That, that That's what comes across I think in the novel so well it's the sense of this hot beautiful vivid tropical place and how that contrasts so kind of keenly with 1950s England which in contrast is this grey kind of miserable, duh, not very nice food. I mean, it must have been a real shock for you. Do you remember oh, coming oh, over? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my character Emma comes to England in the middle of winter to the Midlands in the middle of February, and so did we. And I, oh, it was devastating. It was so dark. It was so gloomy. The children were so white. Um, it was like nothing I'd ever imagined and we my father had built up England to be this wonderful place but but it was horrifying and I missed Malaya really badly. In the novel 
the political situation is very precarious and often and Lydia is uh, thrust into this situation where she has to kind of tra- travel around the country in search of her children, and which is obviously very dangerous at the time. Do you remember feeling scared by the political situation? No. Um, I remember guns. I remember guns on the hall table when the rubber planters came into town for a party. I remember every day my father going out with two armed policemen. But to me, it was normal. I mean, I thought everybody's dad went to work with two armed policemen. It was normal. It wasn't frightening. One of the bits that I love about uh, the one of the many bits I love about separation is that it's a story between a, about a mother thinking that she's losing her children, but also there is this kind of passionate love story. Can you talk a little bit about the part that love plays in the separation? Um, I think it's quite crucial, really. Uh, There is, of course, the love for the children, but the thing about Lydia is she is a mother, but she's not wholly defined by being a mother, as so many 1950s women were, wife, mother, and that was the end of it. She is a person of passion herself, and because of her own upbringing, um, which was sadly lacking in love, love is very important to Lydia. She needs it, she wants it, she wants to give it, she wants to receive it, and she has a very tempestuous love affair with Jack, who is um, a rugged, outdoor, sort of Robert Redford. Oh, he's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, think um, out of Africa, that sort of man. Um, But he's not just a a sort of golden god of a hero. He has a dark side, which the book doesn't really go into much, but you know it's there. He served in Burma during the war, and at the end he didn't want to have an ordinary job. He he needed the thrill, he needed the excitement. But the other thing about him is that he's one of those rare men who really love women in the right way, and so he's not just after his own personal gratification. He, he, he gives Lydia what she needs. And um, one of the most intense parts of the novel is when Lydia believes her daughters have died. How difficult was it for you to write these scenes? Well, in some ways, I mean, as you know, my son died um, in a motorbike accident when he was 14. So in some ways it was easy to write because I had been through it, so I knew what it really was like. In some ways it was terribly hard because I had to revisit feelings a bit more closely than perhaps I'd, you know, for some time been, been doing. And it was hard to actually get the words Um, sounds funny but I couldn't find the right words because I knew how it felt I knew how it had to be but it was a real struggle and um, uh, you know because the death of a child is something that goes beyond almost anything else as far as I'm concerned especially if you're a mother because it's it's cellular it's you know it for it comes from a place where there aren't really adequate words. So it was very hard in that sense, in finding the words that actually matched the feelings I could remember and could still a- access very easily. So, yeah. Well, I think you found those words. They are incredibly kind of vivid parts of the novel. Thank you. Were you surprised by the characters' journeys while you were writing? I mean, did they go off on tangents that you didn't expect them to, or did you kind of plan out the novel? I don't plan, really. I know what my book is going to be about. Um, I know who's in it. I know where it's set. Um, I, I, I find if I plan a book, I'm doing it with my logical brain, which isn't my creative brain. 
And so if I try and plan a book and then write that book, it's like, well, why would I be bothered? I've already planned it all out. It's boring. <laughs> you know, I, I like the creative process of what comes that you don't expect. So absolutely, it was going to be a two-part book with Lydia searching for her children in the first half and then Emma as an adult coming back to Malaya to find her lost mother. So that didn't happen. <laughs> At what point did it kind of switch? Um I think when I realised how quickly it was going and how, you know, the book would be incredibly long <laughs> if it was to have all that as well. And actually, I thought it was more more of a story to keep it in the three-year time frame mm. so it had more impact. Dinah Jeffries talking to her editor about her book The Separation, which is out on the 22nd of May. And if you'd like to hear an extract from the book, we have a reading by Dinah Jeffries on our SoundCloud page, which is at www.soundcloud.com forward stroke penguin hyphen books. Back to mountains and mountaineering with Bear Grylls, who got himself into the Guinness Book of Records as the youngest Briton to summit Mount Everest at just 23 years of age. In his best-selling autobiography, Mud, Sweat and Tears, he tells the gripping story of this gruelling expedition, one which tested him to his very limits and nearly cost him his life. In this clip from the audiobook, Bear faces up to the sheer scale of the task ahead of him. Since we were on Everest, many other climbers have succeeded on the big one as well. She has now been scaled by a blind man, a guy with prosthetic legs, and even by a young Nepalese teenager. Don't be fooled, though. I never belittle the mountain. She is still just as high and just as dangerous. Instead, I admire those mountaineers, however they have climbed her. I know what it's really like up there. Humans learn how to dominate and conquer. It's what we do. But the mountain remains the same. And sometimes she turns and bites so damn hard that we all recoil in terror. For a while. Then we return, like vultures. But we are never in charge. It is why, within Nepal, Everest is known as the Mother Goddess of the Sky, lest we forget. This name reflects the respect the Nepalese have for the mountain, and this respect is the greatest lesson you can learn as a climber. You climb only because the mountain allows it. If the peak hints at you to wait, then you must wait. And when she begins to beckon you to go, then you must struggle and strain in the thin air with all your might. The weather can change in minutes as storm clouds envelop the peak, and the summit itself stubbornly pokes into the fierce band of jet stream winds that circle the earth above 25,000 feet. These 150-plus miles per hour winds cause the majestic plume of snow that pours off Everest's peak, a constant reminder that you have got to respect the mountain, or you die. An extract from Mud, Sweat and Tears by Bear Grylls. Now, obviously, embarking on a journey means leaving things behind. But what if that thing is supposedly the thing you're supposed to love and protect? Here's the opening from Tina Seskis' debut novel, One Step Too Far, where we hear the protagonist running away from her family life. July 2010. The heat is like another person to push past as I make my way along the platform. I board the train, although I don't know whether I should after all. I sit tense amongst the commuters, moving with the carriage and the crowds from my old life into my new one. The train is cool and oddly vacant feeling, despite the people, despite the sweltering of the day outside. 
and this emptiness calms me a little. No one knows my story here. I'm anonymous at last. Just another young woman with a hold-all. I feel adrift, like I'm not really here. But I am. I can tell. The seat is solid beneath me. The backs of houses are rushing past the window. I've done it. It's funny how easy it is, when it really comes down to it, to get up from your life and begin a new one. All you need is enough money to start you off, and a resolve to not think about the people you're leaving behind. I tried to not look this morning, tried to just leave, but at the very last second I found myself drawn to his room and stood watching him sleeping, like a newborn really, not yet awake to the first day of the rest of his life. I couldn't even risk a peep into the room where Charlie slept. I knew it would wake him, stop me going, so I'd quietly turned the latch and left them both. The woman next to me is struggling with her coffee. She's wearing a dark suit and looks businesslike, a bit like I used to. She's trying to get the plastic lid off her drink, but it sticks and she tussles with it until the lid comes off with a shudder and hot coffee spurts over us both. The woman apologises noisily, but I just shake my head for her not to worry and look down into my lap, knowing I should be wiping the dark stains from my grey leather jacket. It will be ruined. It looks odd that I don't. But the eruption of coffee has upset me somehow, and the hot tears mingle with the coffee ones, and I pray that if I don't look up, no one will notice. An extract from the audiobook edition of One Step Too Far. But why is she leaving? You'll have to buy it to find out. It's available now. Next stop, the Peruvian Andes in Touching the Void. This is the true account of Joe Simpson's terrifying adventure, where he and his climbing partner Simon reached the summit of the remote Ciula Grande in June 1995. A few days later, Simon staggered into base camp, exhausted and frostbitten, with news that Joe was dead. In this clip, Joe has just fallen and broken his leg. Miles from help, too far up for Simon to carry him down, Joe struggles with the knowledge that he may never get off this mountain. With a groan, I squeezed my eyes tight shut. Hot tears filled my eyes and my contact lenses swam in them. I squeezed tight again and felt hot drops rolling over my face. It wasn't the pain. I felt sorry for myself, childishly so. And with that thought, I couldn't help the tears. Dying had seemed so far away, and yet now everything was tinged with it. I shook my head to stop the tears, but the taint was still there. I dug my axes into the snow and pounded my good leg deeply into the soft slope until I felt sure it wouldn't slip. The effort brought back the nausea, and I felt my head spin giddily to the point of fainting. I moved, and a searing spasm of pain cleared away the faintness. I could see the summit of Surya Norte away to the west. I was not far below it. The sight drove home how desperately things had changed. We were above 19,000 feet, still on the ridge and very much alone. I looked south at the small rise I had hoped to scale quickly and it seemed to grow with every second that I stared. I would never get over it. Simon would not be able to get me up it. He would leave me. He had no choice. I held my breath thinking about it. Left here. Alone. I felt cold at the thought. I remembered Rob, who had been left to die. But Rob had been unconscious, had been dying. I had only a bad leg, nothing to kill me. 
For an age, I felt overwhelmed at the notion of being left. I felt like screaming, and I felt like swearing, but stayed silent. If I said a word, I would panic. I could feel myself teetering on the edge of it. The rope, which had been tight on my harness, went slack. Simon was coming. He must know something had happened, I thought, but what shall I tell him? If I told him that I had only hurt my leg and not broken it, would that make him help me? My mind raced at the prospect of telling him that I was hurt. I pressed my face into the cold snow again and tried to think calmly. I had to cool it. If he saw me panicky and hysterical, he might give up at once. I fought to stem my fears. Be rational about it, I thought. I felt myself calm down, and my breathing became steady. Even the pain seemed tolerable. What happened? You okay? I looked up in surprise. I hadn't heard his approach. He stood at the top of the cliff, looking down at me, puzzled. I made an effort to talk normally, as if nothing had happened. I fell. The edge gave way. I paused. Then I said as unemotionally as I could, I've broken my leg. His expression changed instantly. I could see a whole range of reactions in his face. I kept looking directly at him. I wanted to miss nothing. Are you sure it's broken? Yes. He stared at me. It seemed that he looked harder and longer than he should have done because he turned away sharply. Not sharply enough, though. I had seen the look come across his face briefly, but in that instant I knew his thoughts. He had an odd air of detachment. I felt unnerved by it, felt suddenly quite different from him, alienated. His eyes had been full of thoughts, pity, pity and something else, a distance given to a wounded animal which could not be helped. He had tried to hide it, but I had seen in, and I looked away full of dread and worry. That was an extract from the audiobook of Touching the Void by Joe Simpson. It's out now. There is a story that in the 12th century, a Welshman, Prince Madog, left the oppressive shores of the British Isles and sailed to America, there to found a tribe among the First Nations. 500 years later, that story still resonated in Wales. This was shortly after the French and American revolutions, and a rather lost soul called John Evans, well, called John Evans by the Church of England, he had his own Welsh name, found himself dispatched to the States to follow Madog's trail in search of confirmation of the story. John Evans is distantly related to Griff Rees, the Welsh singer-songwriter perhaps best known as a member of the band The Super Furry Animals. He had known of the Evans story and decided to tour the States in a quest of his own, writing songs as he followed Evans's trail, filming the while, and recording the whole saga in not just a book, but an album, a film and an app as well. At a time when smaller nations are clamouring for their independence and larger ones resisting it, this journey continues the cycle of self-searching, identity-seeking revolutionaries and carries the Welsh saga to various First Nation peoples in the United States who know better than most what it's like to struggle for your freedom. This is a journey that's literal, figurative, musical, metaphorical, tragical, historical and pastoral and involves herds of unicorns and a Welshman being called Don Juan. As Griff said when he came in, his American interior project is about people's need for stories and a sense of self-determination. Yeah, and people's dependence on, on myths and the problems of colonialism. And um, It was very interesting in particular going to play concerts and meet people in the Omaha Reservation and the Fort Birtsold Reservation who are kind of mini sovereign states within Republican-leaning US states, 
you know, and um, finding other pockets of people who are trying to maintain their identity. And um, although it's impossible to compare the harsh treatment they received at the hand of the colonial powers, um, but th there are a lot, a lot of parallels with uh, minority and enclaves in Europe as well. And I found they had a very optimistic outlook and uh, a young population that's thriving and uh, they have more control over their education systems and they can include their own tale in the history they taught in school. And um, yeah, I suppose it's about survival, the survival instinct. It's also a story of, uh, as John Evans finds himself persuaded to, to follow the trail of this mythical Prince Battle, of simply astonishing, almost comic adventure, where he, this, he turns up with effectively nothing, saying, I'm looking for a mythical tribe of, of Welshmen, can you help? Yeah. And people do. The, 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 he, bumps, he bumps into people who effect, almost make him diplomats and ambassadors. It's extraordinary. Yeah, and I suppose it's a time before science had established itself. And, for example, it was also believed that there were unicorns in the in the Rocky Mountains. Um, so not only was he looking for a, a tribe of Welsh speakers in the northern plains, but he was also instructed to capture an unicorn from the herds that were believed to be in the Rockies and um, bring a specimen back to St. Louis. And so it's a very different time, even though it's only 200 years ago. You know, and and during during the course of uh, his adventure, he he managed to work for various different sides and play one off against the other. And at one point, didn't he didn't he stop a rebellion at one of the camps right on the border? Being a musician, I liken him to a David Bowie style character and a master of reinvention. Um, he would have been born Yen Abivan um, within a few hours of his birth. The Church of England had rebranded him as John Evans. Um, he became Don Juan Evans at 23 years old. When he got to St. Louis and was jailed for being an American spy or a suspected American spy, um, he became Jean Evans. They, gave, they eventually freed him and gave him a trilingual passport. Um, and then he was instructed when he was in the upper Missouri um, mapping that region for the first time and placing... For example, the Yellowstone River, for the first time on a map, um, he was instructed to um, take down um, and, and repossess any forts that the Canadians would have built um, in land that the Spanish like to think they controlled, even though the, the, the First Nations were obviously there already and perfectly fine, thank you very much. Um, However, when he got to um, the Mandan villages close to the 49th parallel, he um, raised the Spanish flag um, and repossessed a British fort in the name of the, the King of Spain. And, um, you know, which drove the Canadians wild and they sent a guy called Jesum back over the border to shoot him and... Um, John Evans was saved by his Mandan interpreter who jumped on top of the Canadian assassin 
and uh, according to some, another fact fairly difficult, difficult to verify, um, apparently John Evans was offered this flawed assassin on a plate, as it were, to, you know, kill, uh, I, I don't know. But apparently Evans, being quite a reasonable guy, offered a deal instead, um, and the Canadian declined <laughs> and uh, went back to Canada and the Spanish flag stayed up. <laughs> uh, I don't know, but I, I didn't know you could decline a, a deal, for example, which... <laughs> pretty good <laughs> I must remember that <laughs> you're a musician and songwriter uh, so perhaps you know, perhaps an album is, was to be expected but that you did much more than that there's a film and there's a book and there's an app as well as an album and all of them there's something different about the approach of each one of those why is that and how did it work for you as, a, as the, the person behind it well the the film for the most part has a lot to cram in into an hour and 20 minutes. Um, so for the most part, we edited out things that went on too many tangents. There, there are so many tangents that we had to keep a, a tight rein on it, and there were a lot of incredible things that Dylan Gogh filmed that had very little to do with John Evans. And uh, the app is geographical, so you, you follow a map, and uh, there are 100, 100 messages waiting for you on the map that uh, was inspired by the title of the one of the songs on the album. And we've been able to include mini documentaries um, about uh, what happened to some of the various tribes. Uh, some of them are profoundly moving. Um, and um, we've been able to include bits of the text of the book, some readings, and the Everything's tied together by, by a song, 100, 100 Messages, so that song built during the app. That was Griff Rees on his and John Evans's discovery of their Welsh ancestry and history in North America. His book, American Interior, is out today, along with the album and app. That's almost it from the Penguin podcast. There's still something you don't want to miss in just a minute, though. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes for future podcast episodes and head to SoundCloud for other author readings and audiobook extracts at www.soundcloud.com forward slash penguin hyphen books. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, visit the website, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk and if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email them to podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or find us on Twitter at Penguin Podcast. To end this episode, we have a very special performance from Griff Reese, an exclusive track from his new album, American Interior, never before performed in a session. Liberty is Where We'll Be is a song set at a time when John Evans was suffering badly from illness as he walked up the Mississippi River. He had malarial fever, he'd lost most of his clothes, and he was walking through reptile-infested swamplands with the sun baking his brains like a cake, as he wrote in a letter. Over to Griff. The parent son has baked my brains Just like a cake in the infinite wilderness of America The so-called road so overgrown it disappears Now I'm lost in the infinite wilderness of America Ah 
taken for a spy Put in stocks and left to cry As all the people pass me by So pack your case of piety And make the case for liberty And we'll retrace the steps that set you free for of America Insufferable thirst and hunger is an amusement in comparison to this In the infinite wilderness of America Is that okay? Yes, Griff, it was. From the Penguin Podcast, goodbye.